This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today is part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma. We present an evening of conversation on education in the state of Washington with some of our most authoritative office holders and aspiring office holders. Over the course of the evening, we touch on school safety during the pandemic, issues related to equity and access, funding needs, curriculum, and a lot more. This conversation was recorded live on the evening of Thursday, October 1st. So we are enormously fortunate tonight to have basically an all-star panel of current and aspiring office holders to talk about education for the next hour. I feel we should just jump right in with our first guest this evening. Uh, Beth Dolio is a state representative from Washington's 22nd Legislative District. Recently, she served as the campaign director at Climate Solutions, a Northwest-based clean energy economy nonprofit. She was also the founding executive director of the Washington Conservation Voters and was a field organizer for NARAL. She is currently running for Congress in the 10th Congressional District. Representative, uh, hello. It's it's nice to talk to you again. I, I know that you're having a personal crisis at the moment, and I just want to say thank you for, for joining us this evening. Appreciate it. Yes, yes. Um, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So since tonight's town hall is all about education, I thought the place that we would unpack all of this is to start with your platform. Um, as part of your congressional campaign, what are some of the key aspects of your educational platform? Well, you know, I come from a family that I was raised by two educators. My mom was a third grade teacher and my father was an administrator. So I really recognize the power of education to really transform lives. And I think, you know, government is basically who provides that, you know, the dollars that educate our kids and making sure that the federal government, the state government, local, we're all working together to make sure that our kids have the best possible experience um, and that it meets them where they are at and how they learn. I really feel like we need to increase education accessibility. And that's a particular focus on making sure that we have universal pre-kindergarten so that kids show up to kindergarten so ready to learn and ready to just take school on with a vengeance. And then we also need to make sure that higher education is affordable and that for me, I really, um, really focus on including not just the two-year and the four-year institutions, but also trade school. So if you want to pursue education post-secondary, that ought to be a clear path that is affordable or, or better yet, free. And then in terms of educators, you know, we need, we need educators that look like the kids that they serve. And so we need to make investments in making sure we're recruiting and retaining a diverse body of educators who reflect the schools that they teach in. And part of that comes right down to making sure that they are paid fair wages. I can tell you as the mom of a third grade, I mean, as a daughter of a third grade teacher, it, it, this dates all the way long, long ago, right? Teachers are just simply not paid enough. And so I'm proud of the work that we've done in Washington state. Of course, it took a court case to get us to do that at the state legislative level, but our teachers are better paid now. After I, you know, after after serving the last four years, we've done a lot of work to kind of make sure our teachers are paid better here. And I want to I want to take that um, know how and knowledge to the federal level and and see what we can do about increasing teachers and educators more broadly salaries across this nation. Finally, I guess the other big piece is um, really just making sure 
that we are, you know, really holistically supporting kids. They have the healthcare that they need. They have, they come to school well-fed. They, they are, uh, they have a, a roof over their heads. And so I really think when we think about education and how to move it forward, it is not just about what goes on in that classroom. It's about making sure that our kids have the social safety net and they're getting the healthcare, they're getting meals regularly, and they have a, a roof over their heads. And that is something that the federal government has a significant role in. And I plan to, uh, you know, as I have as a state legislator, really tackle that at the federal level as well. Everybody, if you're just joining us, we are talking with Representative Beth Dolio, who is running for Congress in the 10th Congressional District, and we're so glad that you're with us tonight. Uh, Representative, you talked about so much there that I would I would like to just unpack a couple of things, one of which is you talk about the need to hire instructors that look like the children that they serve. Uh, so that means recruiting and retaining a diverse body of educators. What are the roadblocks here? Well, I think the, the, the roadblocks are, are uh, teacher salaries. I think we need to raise teacher salaries so that we can actually you know, recruit in. I think the loan repayment programs could be expanded upon. Um, you know, We certainly, in my family, uh, benefited from a loan repayment program for, um, for healthcare. And I think we need to expand that um, so that teachers are getting loan repayment um, and you know, better yet, they won't have those loans, but um, that's not the system we live in right now. And then I think it would also be, we have a great program here in Washington state called Grow Your Own, where it's an easier route from being coming in as a volunteer in your child's classroom. Like I was the PTA you know, member and president in my child's school. And um, you know, I could have been sort of move through a training system that is um, that 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 focuses on bringing people who actually are parents in the schools into the teaching situation. It's called Grow Your Own. We have that going on here in Washington State, and it really helps bring in paraeducators, moving them into teachers, and uh, and diversifying right in your own school district. It sounds tremendous. Uh, just one other uh, aspect of your platform on education that I wanted to ask you about specifically is you say you want to holistically measure student growth beyond standardized tests. I'm wondering what testing ideally looks like to you. Well, you know, I am not an education professional, um, and and uh, you do have some educational professionals on this uh, call, so they, I'm sure they'll have better answers than me. You know, I just think that there's been too much of a focus on standardized tests. I think they put kids, um, you know, they're not very equitable and because, you know, they're, they are biased um, and, you know, not necessarily culturally sensitive. And so they really do put low income kids and, um, you know, communities of color at a disadvantage in terms of those standardized tests. I think it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, my son's a junior at Olympia High School right now, and he actually is like, this is the time he'd be taking that ACT or SAT, and that's not happening right now due to COVID. So I think it'll be a really interesting opportunity to see how do we reform the test system and what does that look like? And there's so much more. For so many kids, there's so kids have so many things to bring to the world. People have so many things to bring to the world. It's not all about how well you fill in the bubbles or how well you write your essay. There's so many more things that um, I think school districts, schools, and teachers and educators 
and paraeducators can really encourage kids to do in the classroom that, that don't revolve around filling in the right bubbles. I think this goes hand in hand with some legislation that you prime sponsored as a bill on cultural competency for administrators, school board members, and teachers. For those who may be unfamiliar, just briefly, what is cultural competence, uh, competency and why do you feel it's needed in our schools? Well, you know, I mean, what happened in this situation is that a, um, a constituent came to my office and, you know, really felt like uh, she was a woman of color and she felt like she wasn't really being understood and that um, by, by the administrators, by the teachers, and that there was a, you know, implicit bias, which is something that we all you know, have within us because we live in the United States where there is a tremendous amount of implicit bias just kind of writ into our systems. And, you know, we have these um, racist systems that we really need to figure out how to transform. And I think starting at the education uh, within our schools is a really, not starting there, I mean, we need to do this, you know, across all, all across our entire culture, but schools is a place where, um, you know, it's really important for teachers to understand um, how their biases impact how they are teaching in the classroom or administrators to understand how their biases might impact how, they're, how they are working with parents and, and the kids. And so basically just, you know, providing training, the kinds of things that Trump is trying to get rid of in our community, but basically just helping people understand what's going on within us in terms of our own internal biases, and then how we can address that as we, as we um, project ourselves and educate our kids and work with parents in our schools. We have such limited time. I, I will also just mention you've accomplished so much here at the state level on education. I, I will mention that you procured $4 million in funding for a climate change curricula. Um, in the time that we have left, I would like to ask you about the issue of charter schools. Your opponent has publicly supported them in Tacoma, calling them school choice. What is your position? I just think it's fundamentally wrong to divert public funds to privately run charter schools that have, you know, basically no accountability to local voters. Now, that's not, I, and I believe, um, you know, my father uh, was the superintendent of the district where I went to school, and he was able to pull in significant federal dollars into that school district to create all kinds of different programs that met kids where they were at, that really, if, it, if you were into the arts, there were arts options. If you were into computer programming, there were computer programs. If, if a typical, you know, a, a, a normal, regular kindergarten program wasn't really working for you, there was a Montessori option. So it just, I feel like if we are investing our public dollars in public schools, as opposed to charter schools, then we are going to be able to create more of those kinds of opportunities within their schools. And I, again, a lot of the, the money that my father was able to tap into to do that came from the federal government. And those are the kinds of dollars that we could be in, infusing into schools uh, around this nation to really build programs that meet kids where they're at. I am terribly disappointed that we are out of time because I could talk with you uh, about this for hours. Before we let you go, uh, what is your campaign website? It is BethDolio.com, and it's D-O-G-L-I-O, -O, my last name. Representative Dolio, please take good care. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. 
We talk next with Mari Levitt. She is a representative for LD28 in position one and is vice chair for the College and Workforce Development Committee. She has a doctorate in community college leadership from Oregon State University and has worked in higher education for over 22 years as a college administrator. Representative Levitt, hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? It's good to be here. It's good to see you again. And uh, unfortunately, we have limited time again. But I do want to start with a large question because you bring such specific expertise to what you do. Philosophically, as somebody who has spent her life specializing in higher education, how do you see the purpose of higher education? Is it to prepare young people uh, for the workforce? Is it to foster intellectual development? Is it to create an engaged and well-rounded citizenry? How do you see it? Yeah, and, and I would say it's all of the above. You know, we know that um, folks who have a post-secondary education of some form or another are more likely to have a higher income, and folks with higher incomes are more able to sustain and take care of their families and contribute to their community and, and create strong neighbors and strong schools. And so post-secondary education is, is, you know, is the gateway, and whether it's a military member transitioning out of um, the military and into the civilian workforce and going back to get a trade or a degree. Um, like my father, who was a Vietnam War veteran and hadn't gone to college. And when he retired, you know, 24, 25 years later, he chose to go to Pierce College um, and get his degree. And he graduated when I graduated from high school from Pierce College. And then he went on to Central Washington University and and um, the, which is the local chapter, the local campus um, in the community and, and get his degree. And so, you know, whether it's uh, 18 year olds kind of coming out and figuring out what they wanna do or whether it's a, a military veteran or a, a worker who needs to go back um, to for retraining out of interest or out of necessary, post-secondary education really is the opportunity and the pathway um, for folks to reach their potential, and we know that. And the other thing I would say about post-secondary education, you're seeing this in COVID. Those with some form of a degree um, are more likely to have been able to retain their jobs and are more likely to be the ones who were able to work from home um, and to be able to um, be okay during a really difficult pandemic. And so post-secondary education is, is critical. And beyond just for me saying that it's critical, we know that the jobs in the future, in order to meet the workforce shortage that we're going to have, um, folks need some kind of skill and employers and businesses are needing folks to participate in a um, apprenticeship program or some kind of pathway. So really post-secondary education is the key to, to reaching potential and community success. Well, by all those metrics that you mentioned here in 2020, how are we doing? What are we doing well in Washington? Where are we coming up short? Yeah, you know, so Washington State is one of the strongest community and technical colleges um, as a system in, in the union. Uh, Washington State does an excellent job of making sure we have community and technical colleges in our rural areas and in our urban areas. And um, as a strong system, they're able to partner with each other on programs. You know, I'm fortunate to have five public institutions within my county, Clover Park, Bates, Tacoma Community College, Pierce, and University of Washington, Tacoma. And they work collaboratively together on programs so that there's not massive duplication of the same program unless there's a need, unless industry has determined that there's a high need and then they work together. And so I think we what we do well is we work collaboratively across the systems, whether it's the State Board for Community and Technical Colleges or whether it's our public 
baccalaureate institutions working well with our community colleges, or even the independent colleges of Washington who work well with our partners to do that. So I think we do that well in making sure that we're partnering with our business and industry. What we don't do well, um, you know, one that we've made some great stride and I think we need to continue was affordability, um, college affordability and expanding our career and technical education and helping our communities understand the value added to career and technical education. So we really did a robust focus on it this past term and we need to continue to do that and partnering with our K through 12 school districts because not every student um, who's a younger student is interested in a baccalaureate traditional kind of degree and nor should they be and nor do we need them to be. We need skill sets across the board. And so partnering together, I think, is, is going to be critical. Um, and again, I mentioned access and affordability. And then I'll give a good example of, of the attainment. So there's what's called an attainment goal. And it's about how what percentage in Washington state do we want folks to have some form of post-secondary education? And our goal is getting to 70. In Pierce County, we're at 37.5. And we are one of the... the you know, lowest counties in the top 10, if you will. And I was at a conference in Colorado this past term and, and we were talking about the attainment goals and, and how critical those are to making sure we have robust communities. And, and of course, the competitive part of me said, well, where's Pierce County in this matrix? So I started adding up, you know, looking at with the top to the bottom and where we fit and we're not impressive, um, unfortunately. And so there's a lot of work to do to, to help and um, build those programs to get to those attainment goals. One of the things that you backed was the Workforce Education Investment Act, um, and and that relates to uh, students being forced to take on often huge amounts of debt. We, we really kind of hobble our students right out of the gate. So, like I say, the state has taken some action. Any thoughts on what else can be done to alleviate some of this this burden that, that of college debt that we saddle our students with? Yeah, so across the country, there's $1.3 trillion is a number I've heard. Um, for folks who are in um, student debt. And in Washington state, over 800,000 folks um, and students have some form of debt. And so we really took a look this past term and will continue to do some work on student debt, whether it's requiring, taking a look at requiring the FAFSA. We leave dollars on the table. Families leave dollars on the table when they're not completing the FAFSA. And I can't help but put in a plug because we're you right around the FAFSA. FAFSA is? Yeah. Um, and the FAFSA is a financial aid um, form that students can fill out in high school to determine if they're eligible for additional dollars. Scholarships are, are based on whether you filled out that form. Loans often are based on you know, low interest rates based on whether you filled out that form. Grants are based on whether a family has filled out that form. And thousands of students across our state don't fill it out. It's no cost. Um, it's a it's an easy form to fill out. It's a little bit of burden for a lot of return. So making sure that our school districts are really encouraging students to do FAFSA. In fact, some states have gone, including Oregon, to a requirement um, that every student re be required to fill out that form before they graduate. We haven't gotten there yet, but we're working with our K through 12 partners to make sure that they're really working hard to, to do that. Another thing we've talked about for our undocumented students, undocumented students haven't been able, they're not able to get grants. They're not eligible for the Washington College grant. And just until last year, they weren't even able to um, apply for loans um, that they'll have to pay back at a certain percentage. And so we passed a bill that allows our undocumented students to get loans in order to be able to go to college to expand that access at um, you know, reasonable interest rates. 
Um, in the Washington, you know, the, the um, Infor Investment Act, we talked about doing some loan remodeling and, and lowering interest rates um, for folks. And so there are a variety of ways. And then in addition to transparency of cost, right? Students need to know, and, and I proposed a bill of transparency and, and patterned after Utah um, and some other states that required institutions to fess up what the cost is of a program for students going in because it's expensive. And if a student or a family, when you're sitting at the kitchen table, you wanna know what you're going into and what the costs are, whether you're gonna be a welder and go to a community technical college for a welding program, which are fabulous, or whether you're gonna go on um, to you know, a particular biomedical or engineering degree, it's important for you to know what you're in for and what you can reasonably afford and then make a conscious and aware decision if that's the right thing for you and your family. So there are a variety of things that states across our, um, our union are working on, including Washington State, because we know student debt is a, is a horrific burden that we need to provide barrier, remove those barriers for our families. In the remaining seconds that we have left, I will just ask you, what, what are some of the challenges that you foresee in the 2021 legislative session on post-secondary uh, education? Yeah, I think anybody in the community technical colleges and, and um, um, oh, Superintendent Reichdahl could certainly tell you about um, what the community technical college system went through during the recession in 20, 2008, 2009, and they have never gotten back. We just made some progress through the Washington um, Education Investment Act to you know, get salaries for nursing faculty up and to get some dollars infused through our advising models and student success models um, to shore up some of the gaps we've had over the period of years. And we were getting close and COVID hit. And here we are now with a four to $5 billion um, deficit, not it's half as much as it used to be, which is grateful. Um, it used to be 9 billion as of just a few weeks ago, what we thought we were gonna do. But post-secondary education, unfortunately, is a discretionary dollar item in our state budget. You know, 50% plus is, is constitutionally mandated. And so post-secondary education, you know, we heard from central Washington, they're laying off folks in housing and some of the auxiliary services like dining um, right now. We just got a notice from the, the president um, that folks are being laid off. I think programs um, who may not meet industry need any longer are probably going to be, um, you know, put on the shelf and staff are being furloughed um, for periods of time. And so it's going to have a negative impact of, of providing opportunity. And when unemployment is high, we need those robust worker retraining programs to get people back to work. Yeah, even with the revised budget forecast that you mentioned, it's still going to be a very, very difficult year. I want to thank you for joining us, of course. Uh, where can people learn more? What's your, your website for your campaign? Yeah, so please, and thank you so much for being here. And please go to marilevitt.com and you can find out how to get involved in our campaign. And we'd love to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Representative Mari Levitt, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. We will talk next with Jamie Smith and Jenny Hitchin. Jamie Smith has served as a teacher for 17 years with a master's in education and has a national board certification in adolescence and young adult, uh, young adult social studies. She is running for representative in position one in LD25. Jenny Hitchin has spent her career working as an educator in our public schools at the elementary, middle, and high school level. She is an active member of the Washington Education Association, and she is running for Pierce County Council in District 6, an area she has lived in for 28 years. As you can see, this next section is going to be all from the teacher's perspective, and we are so grateful to have both of you. Jamie Smith, Jenny Hitchin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. 
So you, as I mentioned, you're both teachers. So I want to start with something that is very top of mind right now. And Jenny, I will I'll direct this question to you to begin with. So across the states, school districts are having to make decisions about how or even whether to open their schools in the face of the pandemic uh, based on risk assessment from the health department. Pierce County was recently moved from high risk to moderate risk, and now a majority of the schools are moving to to reopen and, and do so very rapidly. What are your thoughts on this decision? So we know that uh, for our community to get back to some sense of normalcy, we need our kids in school. Um, We're not babysitters as educators. Uh, a lot of teachers were really upset when people said that. So, um, but we really, uh, we know that our kids need to be in building to be successful, but it is a public health concern and the numbers are actually going in the wrong direction again in Pierce County. And so we need to be working together as a community to make sure that we are keeping those numbers down. And so my concern as an educator is how do we actually get a second grader who wants to hug who has a runny nose, who can't keep a mask on their face to save their life from social, like how do we keep them socially distanced? It's just, it's an, it's a, it's just not in their way. That's yeah. just not what they do. And when they're at home, it's easy because they're isolated with their family. But as soon as you put them with their friends and around their teachers who they've missed, they're going to want to interact. And so it's how do we do that in a safe way? And the only way that's going to work that I see is making sure that we really are reducing the number of students that are coming in building regularly and that parents and adults that are caring for their kids are really doing what districts are asking them to do, which is to screen their kids at home. It doesn't mean you're going and getting COVID kids, COVID tests for second graders, but what you're doing is you're checking their temperature, you're making sure they're not around other people that are sick. And then if they are even possibly sick or anything, we're, we need you to keep them home um, because the spread in a school is going to spread across a community. There's just no other way to count it. Well, Jamie, let's bring you in and get your thoughts. What, what are, Not only what are your thoughts about this decision, but also, and I should mention that you're both union leaders, what do you think should be d done at this point to ensure the safety of teachers and students? Yeah, so one of the things, and you mentioned that our numbers went down. I, I do have to say our numbers went back, are going back up. And um, some parents just and teachers, we just found out today that kids aren't coming back as soon as we thought. So we do need to look at the numbers. But if the, we want the kids back as soon as possible, but we want them back safe. It's very hard to tell a family why their kid isn't in school, but it's impossible to tell their a family why they lost their child. And so we want them to be safe, but we need the community to do the simple things like wear a mask, wash hands, uh, physically distance. I don't like the term social distance. You can be social, but you need to physically be apart. And we need to make sure that the districts have the PPE that we have it for our kids. Not all our kids can afford it. or And so we have to make sure we have it. We have to make sure that we have extra ones because we know people are going to forget it. As a teacher, I have them all over the place. And I, you know, I'll go and be like, oh, great. Did I put it in my purse? Do I have it someplace else? Our kids are going to forget things. We have to make sure we have extra. We have to make sure we have the cleaning supplies. And then Right now, we're going to have to make sure that we only bring back smaller groups. Most of us don't have classrooms that can fit safely that many kids in. 
And that's the big thing is we want them to come back and we want them to come back safe. And so we have to make decisions. And what I really encourage every district is to have the teachers be part of that decision. A lot of districts are not. We need teachers, we need parents to be part of it because as a teacher, we can tell you some of these things. There are districts across the state um, or across the nation that are saying, parents are sending their kids to school when they know they have COVID and, and the health departments are shocked. But as a teacher, most of us were like, yeah, we, ex- we expected that. We, we, we knew that would happen. So we need to have everybody involved in this as we try to bring people back. Because again, it's really difficult to have kids at home but it's impossible to ever explain to a family why we brought them back too early without the safety measures and now their child will never come home. Yeah, I mean, so much of what you're talking about here is just kind of setting expectations in what is this unfortunate new normal that we find ourselves in. Uh, so that's at the school level. And because you're running for uh, representative and because we're almost certainly going to be dealing with this in 2021, We'll stay with you on this, Jamie. What are the sorts of things that you would like to see the legislature do to improve conditions for for teachers and students? So one of the big things is that, and ironically, had we passed a while back the state, um, the initiative that we had for lower class size and have been able to hire the teachers to keep class sizes low, this wouldn't have been as big of an issue because we would have already had enough teachers to be able to bring the kids back in smaller classes. But when we still have, we have in my district classes of 45 right now, we can't bring back 45 kids into a class. And so We need to make sure that we have the funding also for PPE. We need to make sure, some people are saying, you know, why are we paying bus drivers? Why are we paying other organizations? Because now we're bringing school to the kids, not just bringing kids to school. We can provide them and bring hotspots so that they have internet. We are providing and making sure that um, some some of the districts are doing amazing things. They're bringing food and dropping it off because not all kids can come in and get it. They're bringing Wi-Fi on buses so families can park nearby and be able to do that. They're bringing counselors to the kids. So we need to make sure we're maintaining what we have and that we're, the state is talking with districts, figuring out what's working well, and then sharing that information. We also need to make sure broadband is it needs to be a public utility at this point in time, right? And people, some people say, well, no, it should only be for those who afford it. Well, guess what? I'm a history teacher. Electricity used to only be for the rich. Indoor plumbing used to only be for the rich. And then it went to the middle class. And now we expect it. You're never going to buy a new house and have to say, oh, by the way, if you want indoor plumbing, it costs more. It's a utility. And we've now realized that we need to make sure that everyone has access. It's going to help our businesses. It's going to help our farmers. It's going to help our kids. It's going to help everybody by making sure that that becomes a public utility. Thank you for making that point. And I just want to underscore something that you just said. And this really struck me when you and I talked about this earlier during preparation. The, the transportation services, I think a lot of people don't connect with the fact that, as you say, they're bringing food during these times. They are mm-hmm. bringing Wi-Fi. It is, it is absolutely essential that these, these continue to get funded. Uh, Jenny, let's bring you back in. And, and for those who may not be familiar, can you talk about some of the ways that the Pierce County Council interacts with the education system? And, and then what sorts of changes you would advocate for? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I've been asked many times because I am a teacher running for the county council, and that's not a typical trend. Um, But we impact and make decisions regarding where schools can go as far as zoning and where growth can go, go. And when they're not working with their school districts, there's a disconnect and we end up with 
place is growing too quickly for districts to keep up with. Um, we are the support system. We are the wraparound services. We provide um, supports for homeless families. We provide things through 211, which I know that my school district uses all the time. Um, Can we you just work- briefly tell us, for those who aren't familiar, what 211 does? So um, if you've ever dialed 411 on a phone, 211 is something that is used in our community as an information housing. And basically you dial it and they ask you a little bit about yourself, like what you're looking for, and then they hook you up with resources. So I've called for voters about things just to educate myself, but they have just basically a huge laundry list of resources, partners across the community to provide information. So it's pretty much anything you need. They usually have an answer or a a way to connect you. we also partner with the, obviously the Pierce County Tacoma Health Department um, is part of it in, in monitoring you know, food and air and water. Um, we are part of the court systems and our courts sometimes have to come into the schools to handle students if there's an issue or concern or to provide services. Um, and in, I mean, just for the district that I'm running in, they run the ferry schedule. It's how the kids that are live on Anderson Island get to school and they directly tie Um, tie the parents' hands and tie the students' hands with that ferry schedule. But the biggest thing that I think um, our county council should and could be doing is working on our early childhood. And um, Mari and um, Representative Levitt and hopefully future congressional um, congressional woman, congressional woman, um, (laughs) Dolio, sorry. uh, was regard like discussing early childhood. We we have to get kids prepared before they show up because when we have a deficit from day one in kindergarten, the stats are there. They are very very clear. If we start behind, we stay behind, and there it takes so much more energy to get kids caught up. And that's something our county can be doing and should be doing a better job at. We unfortunately have such limited time for this segment, and there's so much that I want to ask both of you about, and I'm going to try to get to questions about funding and also curriculum. Uh, So if you'll indulge me with some shortish answers, uh, that would be really, uh, really very helpful. Um, So we know that many people feel that McCleary funding isn't adequate to meet the needs of our schools completely. And I'm just wondering a couple of things. do you, in terms of funding, do you support lowering the threshold to a simple majority to pass bonds and, and levies? Right now, it's a, I believe it's a two-third majority. Do you support that? Yes. Okay. And then I, I would also add, and, and Jamie, I will ask this question of you as well, but, but Jenny, we'll stick with you for the moment. Do you think that we should continue to rely on bonds for, for building and levies for learning? And if not, where should the money come from? So um, I'm not sure where the money should come from. I think it's it's a pretty clean way to kind of separate things. Um, and so I, I think if we do change things, it's it's shifting the how we're thinking about funding schools. And I know that that's a bigger conversation than probably um, and would be one of the fixes. But um, I think lowering, especially for bonds, we we have school districts that that have the need, the need desperately to build because we're growing in Pierce County. We know more people are coming and we need more schools and we quite literally have no place for them to go. Jamie, I would love to get you to sound off on everything that we've just talked about here. Uh, do you support uh, lowering the threshold to a simple majority? And then do you c- believe that we should continue to rely on on bonds and levies for our, our school funding? Yeah, so I, I think we do need to look into lowering it to a simple majority. Having a, a super majority, you know, we so many times in my school district, we've had 58 and 59 percent of people vote yes. 
but then it doesn't happen. Um, and and I, I recognize that they're saying, well, you're you're looking at different taxes, you're looking at, at charging people more, and so that's why. But when we, as Jenny said, we have literally schools bursting at the seams, and sometimes we have very unsafe schools. We have mold in, in places that if it was a housing unit, they would condemn. But because it's schools, we somehow get to keep them open and have our kids coming in. We've had the issues with pipes, for instance, realizing that some of the pipes in different districts are, are lead pipes or that have issues with them. And so, um, you know, sometimes people say, well, I don't want to pay $3 more, but that $3 more is the health and safety of our kid. And so we, what we need to look at is we really need to look at how we structure schools and how we fund them. Because right now, as you mentioned, levies are for learning. And my particular school district, if the levy doesn't continue, which is going to be on the ballot, we'll lose over 100 teachers. Mm. So over 100 staff members that will be gone. And so many districts have had this issue where a levy doesn't pass. And this co- creates a very a, a big inequity because districts that always pass their levies can have more teachers, can have more curriculum, and can update the curriculum much sooner. And those areas that don't or don't have those same levy dollars have less teachers, have higher class sizes, and they're not able to get that new curriculum and not have the most up-to-date stuff. And so now that we're looking at, you know, needing to have laptops for our kids, you know, laptops cost a lot more than a box of chalk. And so you have to get these things passed. And so you'll have some very affluent areas that can pass them every time. And you'll have not as affluent areas that can't. And this is a, is a big issue. And so we really need to look at exactly how we're funding uh, and what is more equitable way to make sure that districts across the state are getting what they need for our kids. Because making sure that they, they've I've done numbers. Putting money into education quite often has an eight to one return on investment. The problem is, is that you don't get that until they graduate. And so people look at the short term and say, I don't want to spend three dollars or three hundred dollars now. But they don't realize that that's going to save them thousands of dollars in the long run. I hate to rush you through the answer to this question because it is such an interesting topic and you have bring such a unique perspective to it. Uh, But in the wake of the 2016 election, there's been a call for more robust civics education. I know that this is district by district. I know that teachers do not set the curriculum. So, But with that stated, you work with a nonprofit that, quote, works to develop citizenship, integrity, patriotism, and sacrifice in students, and you provide uh, free character development training and curriculum to teachers across the United States. What can you tell us about that? And maybe just talk a little bit about the need for civics in our schools. You know, honestly, we have, you can look at what's going on nationally and you can look at how we've lowered our standards for a while. For instance, we cut social studies to two and a half credits and you didn't, and you can incorporate as long as you have civic style lessons into a class. So it's not necessarily how our government works. And I think you can see the results across the nation of places saying we don't need civics anymore. Um, I, I teach this character development program and we provide it free for teachers. And one of the reasons is because we've seen what's missing in schools. We've seen what happens when we don't let students know why their vote matters and how to vote and what the importance of that vote is. And then instead, there's a lot of voter suppression. A lot of people tell you your vote doesn't matter, but I'm going to tell you this right now. If people don't realize it. The super rich vote 98% of the time. 98%. The, the 2% they don't is typically because they're too sick to get to the polls. So if your vote didn't matter, they wouldn't be voting every single time. And we need our kids to recognize that and understand that. Um, last time I ran when I was knocking on doors, not this time, COVID and all, I, I met a woman in her 30s who had never voted before and was asking me just how to fill out a ballot. And we need to be showing kids when they're 18 how to fill out the ballot. 
I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And quite frankly, I would love to have you on the podcast to just sort of talk about that uh, because I think it's so, so important. Uh, Jenny, I mentioned Beth Dolio's uh, climate change curricula. As a science teacher, I'd love for you to just talk briefly about the importance of this and how it's integrated into your curriculum. So um, I teach biology to freshmen, and um, I'm not sure if it's going to be there this year with the curriculum we're using, but um, climate change curriculum is one of those things that depending on what is offered in your school district, sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. And that's where I think there's a problem. So I'm very excited that we we have this push at the state um, level, and hopefully she'll even go a little higher and push it at the federal level. Um, and because climate change is real. And I talk to students that that they agree, they believe, they, they want to get involved because they're going to be here a lot longer than I am. And they want to make sure I had a student that actually approached me about um, how do I how do I get fruit trees, food trees in my neighborhood? I, I want to do something that's going to be good. It's going to feed people. And, and they're engaged. They want to be part of that community. You've got the Sunrise Movement. You've got all these different youth the Youth Climate Accord. I mean, you've got all this stuff where there's energy behind these kids because they understand they're going to be here. So the curriculum is coming. It's just not there in full in all districts and definitely not equitable across the state right now. You know, before I let you go, uh, I have mentioned at the top that you are both running for office. And Jenny, on your website, you give a number of reasons why people should elect a teacher to the Pierce County Council. I wonder if you could just run down some of those reasons. Yeah. So um, the idea of having a teacher on the council, when you really think about it, what, what do teachers have to do every day? Um, we have to talk to kids when they're frustrated and angry, and we have to talk to adults sometimes when they're frustrated and angry, and we have to get them to do things. We have to listen, and we have to be good at listening to others. We have to be able to communicate, multitask, calm people down. Um, we need to be able to work in groups. We need to learn new things and understand the fact that we are not experts and be willing to do that work. Um, we definitely know how to handle stress. And I have, I as a teacher have the ability in a, an adult situation um, and a student situation to notice when there's a disconnect or someone doesn't understand and ask probing questions. Even if I already understand the topic, if my peers do not, and I can't tell you how often I wish questions were being asked more often um, because sometimes I think it's just a, a misunderstanding at the table that causes some of the strife that, that shuts things down. So those are just a couple of them. There's a bunch on my website. So And will you give us your website? Yeah, I'm gonna throw it in the chat here in a second. So For those uh, who are but, listening by radio, I would love uh, it. Okay, yeah. yes. Um it's electjannyhitchin.com. So it's J-A-N-I Hitchin.com. And then, Jamie, I, I'm wondering how you feel. And this is something that the first time we spoke, you touched on this. How do you feel your experience as a teacher has prepped you for the job of representative? You know, as a teacher, we know how to pivot. We know how to plan. We know how to work incredibly hard. Um, and you can see that. I mean, 90,000 teachers across the state were basically given two days to say, hey, you're shutting down. Start making online curriculum, start teaching, start connecting. And that's what we do. We work with a diverse, a diverse body. It doesn't matter the ideas the student comes in with. It doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum they're on. We're there to teach them because we know what the goal is. And the goal is to have educated kids. The goal is to have them succeed. 
And that is what we focus on. It's not, do they come in as a Republican or Democrat? It does, isn't if they're left or right. And that's what our goal should be, is how do we help Washington and how do we help our kids? I work with parents. I work with community members. I work with administration. We've created stuff. We have changed stuff. We've adapted. And trust me, as a teacher, I know how to adapt on the fly. I have had those classes where you teach it first, you teach it second, third period, none of your technology works. It's a brand new class and you have 40 kids looking at you. So it, it's working together and it's learning how to pivot and it's recognizing when things don't work and changing them because that's key. A lot of too many people, a lot of people say, no, we're just going to, we've already working, stop, do something else. And that's what I think too often we don't see in politics. We would be so fortunate to have both of you in office. Uh, Jamie, what is your website? My website is votejamiesmith.com. Jamie's J-A-M-I-E. Jamie Smith and Jenny Hitchin, such a pleasure. Thank you so much to both of you. We will talk next with Twana Nobles. She is an educator and mentor and an elected official on the University Place School Board. Currently, she serves as president and CEO of the Urban Tacoma League. Twana has nearly 15 years of experience in education as an instructor, PTA leader, and school board member. She is running for state senate in the 28th legislative district, and we are so, so happy that she could join us tonight. Twana Nobles, uh, good evening. How are you? I am good. How are you? <laughs> you look great. <laughs> Radiant. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like I should have dressed up now. Um, so I would love to just start by talking broadly about your education platform. And, and you've made it such a key part of why you're running. Um, wh- why have you made education one of the key focuses of your campaign? Yeah, I think, well, because of my, my background, my education is absolutely what helped to make sure that I could break the generational cycle in my family. And I want that for everyone else. I want that for um, young people who like me had amazing teachers and coaches and mentors who helped them to make better decisions, who helped them to to stay focused and, and think about life after college, career or going to college. I'm sorry, career, yes, career or going to, to college. So help them to think about life after high school is what I meant to say. Um, but my my education is what helped to really turn my um you know, my life around, it helped me to provide better opportunities for my family. And I'm so grateful for those individuals who poured into me, who reminded me I was wearing too much makeup or that I needed to work harder, you know, in in the sport that I was playing or that I was more capable um, as a student. Um, I wanted to be that teacher. I wanted to be that coach. I wanted to be that community member. And I became that teacher, that coach, that community member. So education will always be a priority in my life. And I have, you know, four children who have gone through public school, three of them remote learning. So it's 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 a part of our reality right now. Well, we all know people like you in our lives that have lifted us up during times that we really needed it, and we are eternally grateful, and we wouldn't be the people that we are without you. Um, What are some of the things that you hope to impact at the legislative level? Lots of things, but right now, what what I keep talking about is the importance of broadband and access to um, technology, access to the things that students need right now as they're, you know, struggling and and, and, and working to learn um, remotely. And, and that includes, you know, my kids and, and our experiences. But at Tacoma Urban League, we've been, you know, shipping out headphones and, and laptops and trying to make sure families have what they need. Our staff just did a training with Comcast's um, 
Internet Essentials Program, which I told Comcast, you know, I, I, I do feel bad offering community members, you know, 25 megabits per second when I know for my family I pay for 600 megabits per second because there are multiple people downloading and uploading and watching videos and playing, you know, viola virtually now. And I'm, you know, I've been running a nonprofit from home. So I want the same type of um, service provided to families, but I'm grateful that as a community, we get to offer something to folks. Um, Graduate Tacoma is paying for broadband services um, and Tacoma Urban League is partnering with Comcast to do the same. So as a state senator, I wanna make sure we continue to help families to transition to remote learning, to be prepared for in-person learning when it is time to do that safely. I wanna advocate for the funding that it's gonna cost um, to keep kids safe, right? To retrofit, to disinfect, um, to make sure we have adequate curriculum. And as we talk about um, racial justice and anti-racism to also make sure we have what it takes to focus on curriculum changes and recruiting and retaining additional teachers of teachers of color. So there, there are lots of things, um, but more immediately, you know, the impacts of COVID-19 and our students and families. And, you know, speaking of which, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Pierce County has moved from high risk to moderate risk by the health, uh, health department. And many schools are very rapidly moving to reopen, including in Tacoma. And I'm wondering, um, a number of viewers have, have asked about this. What are your thoughts on the decision to reopen schools in Pierce County? Well, what we know is students are going to learn best in person, right? They're going to get their needs met. I know it was in school where um, a lot of my needs were, as I mentioned earlier, my coaches, my teachers could see um, that I hadn't eaten, that I, you know, needed to have better clothes or, you know, I wasn't having my needs met. And so we know that students are, you know, diagnosed. Um, don't get me wrong. There are some, you know, there's definitely disproportionate reporting that results in, you know, breaking up families as I think about my experience as a youth in foster care. But um, I give a lot of credit to what happens at schools. Um, there is this view inside of the household of our students and families. And so they can get a lot of their um, their needs met, whether it's an IEP or 504, or they just need meals or they need to be connected to an after school program. Um, so I, I also know that we, especially as Tacoma Urban League and myself as a black mom talk about, as we think about reopening and we think about COVID-19, the black community and many other communities of color are, you know, overrepresented in those positive cases. So health and safety is first. While yes, students benefit greatly and will learn best in person, we have to do it when it's time. First is health and safety. Also listening to the needs of families um, and, and making sure that we know what families and students um, need from us as school districts. Um, it's important to continue advocating for adequate funding to make that transition possible. Um, I know in our district, as we think about um, employment and we think about jobs right now that um, haven't been filled because students aren't there and there hasn't been the same um, demand for the jobs and University Place has done, a, um, from my understanding, a really great job of trying to um, connect um, our staff with, you know, different positions to, to make sure we're retaining employment. Our bus drivers are doing amazing things like dropping off our educational packets for our students and delivering food to our students. Um, but when we reopen, fewer students can be on a, um, 
on a school bus, which means we have to pay for more hours for drivers or, or some districts need more buses. So there are, you know, real expenses to reopening and we want to make sure we do that right. I also know right now schools are withdrawing from reopening too soon because in Pierce County, our COVID cases seem to be um, increasing. So we, we want to be patient in this. We want to do things right. We want to listen to the science and make the right decisions for students and families. And as a, a, a Black woman, I want to make sure we're doing the right thing for our, our students of color um, and paying attention to the data and paying attention to how COVID-19 impacts everyone across the board and some worse than others. Yeah. And I think that's something that everybody should should bear in mind when making these sorts of calculations. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, I, you mentioned funding. And that leads me to want to ask about that vis-a-vis some of your legislative priorities. The Economic and Revenue Forecast Council, the ERFC, had previously projected that we were going to have about an $8 billion budget shortfall. Uh, Mari Levitt, uh, she referred, she uh, mentioned this earlier. Uh, this week, they cut that projection in half. It, it really caught everybody by surprise. And, and I, I will ask you to speculate here, but I'm wondering how you hope the new budget projection changes what may be possible in next year's session on things like education. Yeah, well, I absolutely hope that we are um, not going to be cutting critical funding. I absolutely hope that we already understand that public education was not fully funded and that we wanna do um, what's absolutely best for students. And so we need to you know, um, preserve all of our education funds. Um, we need to make sure that we are, are, are championing um, what we can get from not just state, but also, you know, federal funding. Um, and it, it will take, you know, the right representatives, the right senators in Olympia um, to do, you know, to, to make those decisions. And I know yesterday we were talking about mental health. Mari was there. I mean, we need to make sure that we have mental health resources um, for students, that we have social emotional resources for students in our schools. So there, there are lots of things that we can do. Um, we want to, you know, think about what we can increase, um, you know, how we can work really hard on behalf of, of our students and, and families to ensure that there is funding. I want to give you the opportunity to talk about how your vision here differs uh, in terms of education from that of your opponents. Well, <laughs> that's really easy. I, I'm a supporter of, of funding our public education system. You can count on me um, to, to, to be that voice, to, to not be supportive of making cuts as an educator, as someone who has served on the school board, but more importantly, as a mother and understanding the challenges of families, understanding you know what it costs schools um, to educate a student and where the gaps are to providing quality education to prepare our students for um, you know this global economy. Um, we need we need someone um, we we need me in the state legislature to be that voice to fight extremely hard to preserve the funding and not to be rushing to a special session to make cuts to those funds. Um, so I'll continue to be a strong voice and a champion um, for students and for families. And I want to make sure that we that you know we have productive conversations about progressive revenue um, and understand that we can adequately fund um, even mental health resources in our schools. So 
you know, lots, lots of ways that we differ, but one, I will be supportive of public education and the funding that is necessary um, to, to teach our students and to care for our students. Well, you answered a listener question about how we prepare our students for an, an uncertain future, things like the transition to a green economy. Um, you know, I know that this is a difficult time for so many parents right now, and you as a working parent, as you mentioned, you know this better than anybody. So I just want to thank you for your time tonight and, and staying a little late. Uh, before I let you go, how can people get involved with your campaign? Please visit TawanaNobles.com. There is a link on our website where you can click volunteer. Of course, you can um, volunteer to be involved. You can donate. Please follow us on social media. Um, just search Tawana Nobles on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, you name it, we are there. And help us to share our um, campaign story with your neighbors, your friends, your family, and more importantly, get involved by voting for Tawana Nobles and get involved by simply voting. I would agree with everything that you just said, and I would also say that you have an extraordinary personal story that I would encourage people to go to your website and check out. Tawana Nobles, it is always a pleasure. Thank you uh, for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And finally, we speak with Chris Rakedahl. Chris Rakedahl has been serving as Washington Superintendent of Public Instruction since 2017. Previously, he was representative for the 22nd Legislative District. And we're just so glad to have him on as our final guest this evening. Uh, Superintendent Rakedahl, uh, hello again, sir. How are you? It is good to see you. Thank you. And can I just say uh, folks need to get their tails in any way they can to support everyone you just heard. You yeah. have a future representative there, a future senator there, uh, the next woman in Congress there, a future county council member there in a re-election effort. Absolutely phenomenal candidates. The greatest year I have ever seen for that kind of talent. So please, please step up for those folks. I couldn't agree more. I have been so extraordinarily impressed with everybody on this panel. And, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on a number of things that we've discussed tonight because you've been listening. Uh, and let's start with my discussion with Representative Dolio about testing, because I know that this is important to you, too. Um, she said that she supports testing that holistically measures student growth beyond standardized tests. So in an ideal world, to you, what is what is student testing in Washington look like to you and, and what would it measure? In an ideal world, we don't have a federally mandated test that is only two subject areas that's given to kids every single year, third through eighth grade and once in high school for the sort of concept that if you just test kids more, it will raise rigor. That's not what it, it does. It simply doesn't. It spends a ton of money, by the way, mostly to replicate what we already know about students because we spend so much time preparing for exams and testing them that we don't actually get into the work of growth. So in an ideal system, uh, it's twofold. One, the state does need to be accountable. And I believe in something called the National Assessment of Educational Progress. It's called NAEP, and I would encourage people to take a look at it. For significantly less money, I'm talking about saving billions across the country in testing. You sample in every state, a representative sample, so you can tell with statistical significance, students of color, students with disabilities, um, grade bands. Uh, but you then get a meaningful comparison on how we perform in the state relative to other states, and you can figure out if we're doing better or worse on math, science, English, language, arts, or any subject. So that's the federal accountability where we could save billions of dollars, tons of time, and focus on learning. The more important thing is let's trust teachers. We have what's called formative assessment along the way. Teachers are trained professionals to assess student learning. And if you look at all the research, every great researcher in this subject will say it isn't about a standardized test. Think about high school, for example. For four years, six periods a day, two semesters, 
you get 48 different evaluations of students by the time they graduate from trained professionals across multiple subjects. Student attendance and their grades and the rigor of the classes they take, far more predictive for their success than any test. Bottom line, blow up all the federally mandated tests. Just use one that does a sampling methodology. It'll tell us everything we need to do about state performance and trust educators with formative assessments. You're getting a bravo uh, in the comments there. So uh, definitely connecting on that. Uh, Representative Dolio and I also spoke a couple things. Uh, One was the challenges of hiring a diverse body of educators in the state. I will ask you what steps you're taking to encourage that. Yeah, many. Number one, you've got to raise the profile of the expectation that we are going to be an anti-racist and and, and culturally responsive system. So no person of color wants to come into a system where they feel isolated. No one wants to do that, but particularly in education, which is really, really brutal. Um, So you've got to create the expectation. So ironically, it starts with a really clear message that we're going to educate students to be really focused on racial equity, that they're going to see their history differently. They're going to understand the contributions and the heroes in mathematics and sciences and build that culture of we have built something in this country, uh, not this artificial history that in many ways has a very, very narrow perspective to it. Once you create that and you build that, then a lot of young people in the system today say, you know, I want to teach in that system. Now I see myself and now I want to develop the next generation. So intentional recruiting, we have districts who've now traveled the country to recruit in places that are far more diverse than Washington really intentional financial aid for students, particularly students of color who want to teach. Um, I personally think this should be a public benefit so significant that there shouldn't be tuition for teacher prep programs, uh, therefore no loans. So like you can do dramatic investment, and I don't mean big, like it wouldn't cost much to completely change the dynamic of who says I want to teach. Uh, So that, and then the other thing you always got to remember is it's not enough to get people in the door. If it's not a place where they feel professionally supported, they don't get mentorship and they can't really connect effectively with professionals, uh, they won't they won't last in the system. Uh, so there's lots of things we're currently doing like that. There's more that we can be doing, uh, but being really intentional about student recruitment uh, into the pipeline and elevating our paraeducators who are far more diverse, those are paying off awesome in some districts. I, I just love what you said about it all beginning with, with teaching a curriculum that is really centered in racial equity. Uh, I, I think that's, that's just spectacular. Um, I will also ask you about what I spoke with Jamie Smith and Janie Hitchin about, which is Pierce County Schools now moving to open to students uh, as soon as possible. Just wondering what your thoughts are about that decision. Yeah, so I know as parents, parent of two and everyone else, we want our kids in school. That is a uniform belief that, that we've built a system of support for them. Yes, great content, but, but nursing supports, their mental health supports, food and nutrition. It is the place we want our kids. We cannot do it too fast. Just because you click over some threshold from high to medium or medium to low, you can't just open the floodgates. I talked to two colleagues last week around the country, my peers in Georgia and in Oklahoma, rapid openings in suburban uh, uh, Georgia, immediate closures because they went too fast, didn't have an effective strategy to do it slow uh, with intent. Oklahoma, western part of the state, opened rapidly remained open, but in some districts, half of their kids are on a 14-day quarantine already. So now you're trying to run an in-person system while you've got to create individualized learning plans for kids for you know two, three weeks at a time at home. So I know parents want to go fast, and I really, truly respect that. I want my kids in school. It's got to be methodical. Our guidance is very clear on the threshold to open. 
We have very clear guidance on what you have to do to keep students and staff safe when you get there. But every expert around the country has said, start with early grades, maybe just kindergarten or kindergarten through third grade. Start slowly, build that expectation understanding, and then continue to grow that. If you try to open up an entire school district or even an entire building for all students or even half of them all at once, um, unfortunately, it'll be more disruptive in the end. What you're talking about is something that I was referring to earlier, which is the new normal. And, you know, you are the voice of the school uh, system here in the state. And I'm wondering how you feel in that position. We should set expectations for parents and students for what is really just a very uncertain future right now. Yeah, we keep using the word grace in our office and in our system. Um, I know there's a lot of anxiety. We're in the middle of a national culture war. This was building before COVID. So the guttural response to crisis um, are people either withdraw or they lash. And I would challenge folks to find this place where they are advocating, where they're clear about what they want, but give grace to folks who work as professionals, whether it's an education or anything else. We have done this once every hundred years. So nobody living today has managed through a public health crisis of this magnitude. So we don't have all the answers. What we have is science. What we have, hopefully, is respect for each other. Uh, baby steps now that we've watched entire countries like Israel crank up and shut down again. Uh, the UK is on the verge of shutting down again. It's grace right now we have to offer. Steady progress, respecting that everyone's doing their best uh, to put their best foot forward. It's what we owe each other as human beings in a civil society. Um, and when we do that, I think we'll get uh, good outcomes and people will see where the benefits uh, can, can, can be right ahead of us here. Thank you for that. Um, I think those are wonderful words. In the time remaining we have, I do want to touch on a couple of issues about your opponents um, because I think this is something that touches on almost every uh, aspect of this year's election in the state. Um, and we'll start here. We know that she has lied about our 90. We know that uh, she has lied about her educational credentials. And now there's an organization that she lists as a 501c3 that doesn't actually have that status. And I, I spent all day trying to formulate a question around this. And I'm just going to flat out ask you, in a position where character and integrity matter, what does this mean to you? What, what are your thoughts here? Uh, so this is a tough question for me because um, unequivocally, I will tell you that this job, ironically, doesn't have tons of power. It has relationship power. You build relationships with the legislature, with school districts, with the governor's office, with the business community, with labor community. It is a relationship business and it's entirely about trust. And so I've never questioned an opponent in my life in terms of their passion to want to do the work. Um, this is the first time I've run against somebody who quite literally um, has four or five things in the voter's guide that has now not checked out by objective you know, uh, folks in the press. And so it's really unfortunate. Um, uh, I, on a very serious note, you know, politics aside, when you list your organization as a 501c3 and it's on your website, there is a big presumption by people who donate to you that they can write that off on their taxes uh, as a charitable tax deduction. And I truly, truly hope and, and pray that there are not folks out there who are in legal jeopardy now because they wrote something off on their taxes based on what was seen on that website. And that is for them to figure out, for her to hopefully communicate to them about the truth of this. But uh, it's a job about integrity, about honesty and humility, because you're going to make mistakes and people are going to get frustrated with decisions. But if you if you can't be truthful in a campaign, I've always told every candidate who's ever asked me about running, I've said, you will govern exactly as you campaign. You will govern exactly as you campaign. 
bring dignity to the campaign, honesty, transparency. That's how you'll govern. Be on the edge of truth all the time. That's how you'll govern. So I think the values are just massively different here. I want to talk about the ripple effects here because I think there's a concern that because most voters are not as informed as everybody, all of you watching and listening tonight, they're not going to question the disinformation that's in the voter pamphlet. And that's a problem, we know, because the GOP is trying to use that disinformation to drive turnout among their base. What are your thoughts on how we overcome that? Well, this helps a lot. I mean, obviously, we have to be in communication with each other. Um, you asked an awesome civics question earlier. Um, I wish I had gotten a bill done 20 years ago in my career, but as superintendent, we did get a civics mandate back in our schools. And so uh, this kind of stuff is coming more and more for kids. It is sad that the really objective and high-quality press corps is uh, largely depleted. There are some papers and a few folks in TV still really committing some resource to it, but it's tough. And so the White House race and the governor's race and, you know, uh, catastrophic wildfires and COVID, these are dominating headlines. And it is hard in a season like this for people to get all the way down to that nonpartisan school superintendent race to ask the hard questions. Some of the press are doing that. And I really appreciate it. Um, we need folks to ask really, really hard questions and then elevate that as a function of news, not just editorials. It is newsworthy that the person who wants to run our schools um, has had so many questionable, well, you know, untrue things. Well, I mean, speaking of reporting, there's a report in The Stranger today by Rich Smith uh, detailing how R90 is being funded indirectly by the likes of Anheuser-Busch and, and Juul, the vaping uh, company. And this is, you know, ostensibly about uh, care for our kids. What, do, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first, let's remind all your listeners that REF90 is to affirm the legislature's passage of comprehensive sexual health education that's age-appropriate, medically accurate. It helps reduce sexual violence and assaults against our young people. 29 other states do this. Parents have a ton of rights in the bill. So I always want to ground this in like the truth of this thing. It is interesting. Um, I'll observe a couple things. Uh, one, folks should should know that most of the money on the other side of this thing went in to get the signatures. So they've spent most of the money, at least in the current PDC reports, they could certainly dump in more later. I, I think people should be very alarmed at the amount of folks who do not see this issue as an educational issue or as a young empowerment issue, but they are bringing a religious value to our public schools. You've heard me say this before. I deeply respect individual religious liberty and families' right to opt their kids out of this. That is different than saying no child should learn this because my particular religion doesn't agree with you. So I'm really bothered by that money. The other thing that's a little more subtle, if I just take 30 more seconds, is that the, the, the House Republican Caucus has put money into this, mostly on the front end to get those signatures. And I'd be careful for people to say, well, then let's see who gave to them. To make an assumption that some of those donors wanted this money to go against Ref 90 is, you should be careful of that. Most of the folks who donated to a pack like that thought that the House Republicans were going to support Republican candidates who share their interests on a host of things. I would guess some of them are pretty frustrated that the House Republicans used that money not to support candidates. They supported a ballot signature collection issue based entirely on lies about what's actually in it. So I'm guessing there's some questions being answered uh, these days about why that money was used that way. I'm sure that's true, and I'm sure those questions are being asked behind the scenes as we speak. Um, let's end here on something of an up note, if we can here. Um, I'll ask you about the ERFC uh, projected budget. Uh, the, the Economic and Revenue Forecast Council recently cut the state's projected budget shortfall in half, down from $8.8 .8 billion. This was 
good news, potentially. Um, I'm wondering how that changes how you conceive of what may be possible with our schools over the next few years and how that would impact uh, a second term for you. Yeah, so um, our forecast council looks at two things, the revenue coming in, which is definitely stronger than they originally predicted in June, and they look at caseloads. So what kind of demand is there going to be on the public sector? Um, I tell everyone it's good news, but also be a little cautious, right? Um, clearly, uh, the game's being played by this White House and, and, and congressional Republicans in the Senate. They don't want more relief. So we are going to run out of that cash flow for vulnerable families and and so it's good that we saw that. I'm still a little cautious. Here's what I am clear about, though, and I think you and I talked about this in the past. Four billion or eight billion should not be a presumption of austerity. Austerity is fundamentally a practice of racism and a practice of oppressing people who need the most support. The reason we have a public sector is it defends our absolute constitutional rights, but it also takes care of the most vulnerable and creates the biggest opportunity, whether that's early learning, K-12 or higher ed. So when people say the first thing we have to worry about is cutting budgets, it's their way of saying, let's continue to go backwards for people who need it the most to protect those who have, have more resource. So it's gonna have to be well thought out and patient, but let's start with where we can get progressive revenue. Let's be really candid about where we're subsidizing things that probably no longer need it. Um, at $4 billion over three years, that's pretty doable. I think they can avoid cuts altogether if they take a holistic approach to this. Um, please, everyone, never believe that austerity is somehow a responsible practice if it doesn't start with what's fair and equitable revenue, where can we find efficiency, then you talk about cuts if you absolutely must do it. We are not in a position where we must cut right now. I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, would you like to give us your campaign website before you go? chrisreykdahl.org. Everyone wants to put an H in it. It's not R-E-Y-K-D-A-L, uh, chrisreykdahl.org. I really appreciate uh, you all. It, it's, it's unbelievable, but in 15 days, you're getting your ballot. And 16 days after that or 17 days after that, the election's over. And, and our side's going to vote early because we know the tampering by the feds on our mail system. Um, so if you are somebody out there advocating, phone calling, supporting one of these amazing candidates that came before me or us, Think about this as an election that's over in 16 days, because the ability to influence voters after that will be much harder because so many ballots are going to come in so early. Thank you for framing it that way, an election that is over in 16 days. So we got to put the pedal to the metal. Superintendent Rick Dahl, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. My thanks again to Superintendent Rake Dahl, Representative Beth Dolio, Representative Mari Levitt, Jenny Hitchin, Jamie Smith, and Tawana Nobles. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fysears. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.